0: Hey, everybody, I'm excited about starting a new series. And here's a little bit behind the series. We're calling it Picture Bible. And there are these accounts, especially in the Old Testament, so the books written before the life of Jesus, that are ancient. In fact, some of them would span all the way back to the beginning of time as we know it. And these short narratives have shaped our thinking and our culture probably more than we would even be able to acknowledge. They're at the root of how we interpret the world. They're at the root of the story of God and the story of human beings. And so over several weeks, we're going to take a look at some of these stories. Now, for some of us, this is going to be brand new. Maybe you're spiritually unresolved. You haven't spent any time with the Bible. Um, This is going to be a good time for you to anchor Uh, for you to understand some of these stories that Christians often just refer to in conversation. Uh, And then for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a while, we're going to find that there's still truth to be mined. So personally, for me, some of these stories, like literally, I've read over since I was a child. I was astounded just this past couple of weeks as I was looking at Genesis 1-3. through And just for like the first time almost, you're shocked by The truth that you find in this text. So this is what I'd like us to do. Before we actually read through portions of Genesis 1 through 3, picture Bible, story of Adam and Eve, I want you to watch this video. This video is put out by the Bible Project. And all in all, these are just very, very theologically astute videos that help us understand some of these stories. This is going to have to do with the first several chapters of Genesis. The book of Genesis.
1: It's the first book of the Bible and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11 which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50 which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf. Which in context means to harness all of its potential to care for it and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans, it's a key word in this book, and he gives them a garden, it's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're gonna go about building this world, and that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the human sees autonomy, they take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves and in the instant the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are now. They can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God and then when God finds them they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now right here the story stops and there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head. Which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. very mysterious promise of this wounded victor but in the flow of the story so far you see this is an act of god's grace the humans they've just rebelled and what does god do he promises to rescue them but this doesn't erase the consequences of the humans decision so god informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion all leading to their death From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing
0: at every level. So I'd like us to begin to read. We're not going to have time to read all of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We're just going to read a few portions. And then I'd like us to look at the things that we learn about God and about humans and about God's big story from these three chapters. One little thought. This book was originally written by Moses. And here's the context the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, have been in slavery for about 400 years. And can you imagine what would happen collectively to your psyche, to you as a people group, if you have been told for four centuries that you are subhuman, that you are not Egyptian? And the narrative around you had been this. This is, this is what the, the Egyptians believed, that God is found in this world and they associate their gods. I'll just talk about three, Ra, Isis, Osyra. They taught, They associate these gods with the sun, with the Nile River, with other natural bodies around them. And your God, who you've been worshiping, Yahweh, has been silent for 400 years. Well, When they escape Egypt, they really don't know who they are. They're in a complete identity crisis. They know they're not Egyptian, and so they've been told they're not valuable. And they're really wondering who their God is because they hear the stories about their forefathers, Abraham, but their God's been silent, and the most powerful people in the world seem to worship the the moon and the sun and the Nile River. And So God, in his just comforting and instruction, is going to take them into the desert And he's going to give them a new story. It's a story that helps them understand who they are and who God is and what their place in the world is. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Loaded statement, right? What are the origins of the universe? Well, the first chapter in the Bible says God created. Now, the earth was formless and empty. So there's something currently there. It's existing but it's empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, notice all of this is through words, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now if you follow that chapter through, God's going to systematically create uh, bodies of water, animals that fly, fish, mammals and it follows this pattern God said it happened and at the end every time God says and it was good it was good now let's move towards the end of the chapter where God is going to create human beings verse 26 then God said let us make mankind in our image he refers to himself in the plural it's a triune reference let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, in chapter 2, it's a retelling of the creation story, but it focuses mainly on human beings. In chapter 2, it's a different genre of literature. It's written as a Hebrew poem. And this is what we read. We'll just read verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So you have this environment where there's absolute freedom. God's asking them to create, asking them to lead, to rule, to govern his creation. But he says, here's the one thing that is prohibited. Well, guess what happens? Verse three, uh, chapter three, verse one through eight. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? twisting God's words, making God seem more prohibitive. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. She already has a view of God. She's adding words. She's adding layers of law. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's a future ahead of you that you can access. God's trying to hold you back. He doesn't want you to be fully you. He doesn't want you to achieve your own goddesshood. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So what does this tell us? We just skimmed through the three opening chapters of the Bible. Here's a few things I think we can learn that help us understand the world. Why God wrote this to a group of people who didn't understand the big picture. Original Hebrew people coming out of Egypt. You know what? Today in our world, there's a lot of narratives out there. There's a lot of stories or philosophies that help us understand who we are and perhaps who God is and what our place in this world is. There are stories that say, hey, there was no God involved whatsoever. The universe evolved of its own accord. There are stories that say all types of things about God. But this is what we learn from the biblical account, which grounds and roots my entire perspective on life. Number one, let's talk about what we learn regarding God, what we learn about God. First would be this. God is the uncaused being. That's a funny phrase, uncaused being. But here's what that means. It means that we now have an understanding for how everything in this world came about. But we have no understanding for how God came about. And for God to be uncaused, meaning nobody created him. He didn't create himself. He didn't come from prior matter. He didn't come from prior deity. It says that God is distinctly different. He is the uncaused one. He has been and he will continue to be. So God is in a completely different realm than we are. We are temporal beings. The earth is temporary. God has been, and he will continue to be. We never read anything about the origins of God, and that's what makes him God. Secondly, what do we learn about God? God is intimately involved with, but outside of creation. So The Hebrews have been taught by the Egyptians a form of what we call pantheism, meaning God within, that God was in the moon, in the sun, in the Nile River, and so the deity of the world is interwoven into the fabric of the natural world. And so you'll see this throughout many millions or billions of people think this way, is that you find God within creation. Now, here's what Genesis says. It says, uh uh-uh, you don't wanna worship the moon or the sun or the rivers or the stars or the animals or the spirits behind the rocks. Why? Because those things are distinctly different than God. He spoke them into being, so you can't find God within. Now, I wanna reflect back on a movie that came out some time ago, uh, Avatar. I bet a lot of us saw it or you heard about it. And that's a, that's a pantheistic worldview that God is inside, this bio-life, this bio-energy, and you find God inside of his creation. Well, thousands of years ago, Moses says this. No, God is involved with, but distinctly different than his creation. And so we don't worship the created world. Third lesson about God would be this. God is wildly Creative. Think about it. In this succession of things that he creates, the variety of plant and animal life, um, from the duck bill platypus to the tiniest insect. I mean, out of this God comes variety of colors and, and species of animals. But within his creativity, there's also order. We have genus, we have species, we have families of, of animal life. But this God that Moses is describing is wildly creative. Uh, God is incredibly powerful. So Moses really wants to emphasize this by saying, when God created this world He didn't take some pre-existing matter and refine it and enhance it, but God spoke the world into existence. So think about in ancient times, if a king could speak a command and it, it changed a culture, it changed a law. He's saying this, this God is so creative that he can go from conceptualization, he's thinking about something, and speak, and it happens. This is a God who speaks new realities. Uh, There's an ancient Latin phrase, ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. Simply his words have the power to create life. What else can we learn about God? Well, there's a picture in here that God is benevolent, meaning he is kind and he is generous. The gods of the Egyptians were not that. They were angry, and you worked hard to appease them. And if you didn't make them happy, then denial wouldn't feed you and the sun wouldn't shine. But in this understanding of God, what what does God say after every created day? He says, that is good. I'm so happy about that. And then there's this word blessing that's used over and over in the book of Genesis, that God looks at the first human beings and he blesses them. Meaning he says, I wish the best on you. I I, I wish that you would prosper and grow. And I wish that there would be beauty and security in your lives. So God is a benevolent God. That's just a few things we can learn. Let's transition, though. What can we learn about humanity, right? So what do we learn to help us understand who we are from this ancient text? Number one is that we are image bearers, image bearers. There's this very unique perspective that you do not find in any other philosophy or world religion I'm familiar with. It says, God says, I am going to make human beings, us, he actually uses plural, in our image and in our likeness. So this is a really radical statement, right? That human beings were designed to reflect God. I think this has great importance in some of the cultural things that we are facing today. This idea that the first human beings, we have no color, no idea what the color of Adam and Eve's skin was, right? That has nothing to do with the image of God. It means that Adam and Eve and then their descendants reflected God. In fact, one of the commands that's consistent through the Old Testament is it's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall make no images of me no idols. And Hebrew teaching and even Christianity its one of the unique religions in the whole world where there are no statues of God. You can't find an ancient statue of Yahweh because God said, no, 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 no. You will never make a statue of me. Why? Because human beings were meant to be the image bearers of God. It's how we lived. It's how we interacted with this world. And with all the tension that we're feeling and and racial strife and realities of injustice. This is what God was trying to get across thousands of years ago is this idea. No, human beings are unique. They are the image bearers of God. And when we're doing it well, we get to show the rest of creation. We get to show other people that we are indeed a reflection of God. And can we mess that up? Absolutely. Can we be an extremely poor image bearer Absolutely, but when we are in alignment with God, when we're understanding who he is and who we are, we are image bearers of God, every human being. If you're watching this and you're in Africa, if you're watching this and you're in Asia, if you're in South America or North America, we were designed to be image bearers of God. Therefore, human life is sacred and all human life is equally valuable. It tells us something about who we are. In fact, I, I just want to interject uh, from the New Testament something that Paul writes about 2,000 years ago, Colossians 3:11. Um, this was just think in the Roman system of some people are Romans and others aren't, and some people are slaves and some people are free, and there's massive gender distinctions. This is what Paul writes. This was a radical statement 2,000 years ago. Here, meaning here in this reality, in God's kingdom, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And the church has, we haven't always done this well, but at the core of what we should understand about ourselves is this, is that in Jesus We are all equal. In Jesus, my ethnicity isn't what defines me. My gender isn't what defines me. My language, my nationality, none of that defines me. We're all in him. What else do we learn about ourselves? We learn that we don't work for ourselves. Okay, not only are we image bearers, but you got to ask the question like, well what's the purpose of a human being? Like is it to find happiness? Is it to achieve something? Is it this is this is my purpose and this is your purpose according to Genesis 1 through 3. I work for God. I was put on this planet to be a steward for him. To take care of the things that he made to continue the creative process, to take a piece of land, to take a company, to take an organization, to take the school that I teach in, whatever I attend, and to say, I am here to bring beauty to this thing and to make it look more like what God already intended. So I don't work for myself. It's one of the tenets of the Christian faith is that I exist for God. God does not exist for me. Another thing that we learn about human beings is we have a choice. And this choice of course is, will we choose autonomy or dependence? Will we choose to decide what is right and wrong? Or will we let God decide what is right and wrong? That's what's behind this whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve, do you just trust God and he can be God and he determines what's right and wrong? Or do you want the knowledge of good and evil? Do you want to determine what's right and what's wrong? And, Human history has been an experiment and different people who have different values and they've decided what's right and they've decided what's wrong. And part of what God left us this book is we need a guidepost because what I feel should be right may not be right. This is even an act of me going back to the tree and saying, God, you get to decide what's right and what's wrong. And we have a choice, every human being. It wasn't just Adam and Eve. Am I autonomous? Can I be my own God or do I choose to depend On him, a big part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I describe it this way sometimes. It's taking the fruit that we all took from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and rather than continuing to eat it, I put it back on the tree and say, okay, I surrender my life to you. I choose not to be autonomous. I put the fruit back on the tree. God, you decide. You decide what's right. You decide what's wrong. Something else we learn from this, is that all human beings are now damaged. We didn't have time to read it, but if you went to the end of chapter three, uh, we read about Adam and Eve feeling shame. And there's so many facets of the world changes in this catalytic moment. They go from harmony with each other and harmony with the earth, harmony with God, to now... Adam and Eve struggle in their relationship. The creation struggles. Their relationship with God is different. They feel shame. They're hiding from God. And that's just something that helps us understand the world. It helps us understand human history. It helps us understand what's happening now in the world. Is Human beings are broken. And we have friction with the earth around us. And friction with God and shame. And friction with other people. That's part of what we learn. Now, Third thing I'd like to look at is this. What do we learn about the story, okay? The big narrative. What do we learn about our place in this world? I just want to bring out a few points. Number one would be this. We would be remiss if we didn't realize there is an enemy of God, okay? So in chapter three, he's introduced the serpent. We have no idea about his origins from this text. Um, We don't know why God allowed it. Those are all legitimate questions, But here's what we do know. God says, for you to understand this world, you're gonna have to understand that there is an enemy of God. and he schemes, as he did with Eve, to separate human beings from their creator. So if I live my life without understanding, it changes things. It's not just me trying to do the right thing. It's me understanding, but there is also an enemy of God who wants to separate me from God. Now he's gonna do whatever he can to move me towards autonomy and independence. What else do we learn about the big story? Well, we learn that in the third chapter in the Bible, there's a promise for a wounded healer. Wounded healer. So as God goes through, hey, because of what you've done, this is what's going to happen to Adam. This is what's going to happen to Eve. This is what's going to happen to the serpent. This is what's going to happen to the earth. He looks at Eve and he says, Eve, there's going to be some challenges you face, but one day uh, he makes this interesting reference. He says, There's, the serpent's gonna bite your heel, but you're gonna crush its head. And it's, it's the beginning introduction of Jesus is that God, this is thousands of years before Jesus showed on the scene, is there would one day be a solution to the events of Genesis chapter three. And that solution would be the person of Jesus, be the byproduct of a woman. And the enemy would bite his heel and inject the venom of death into him. But the work of the cross and the resurrection would crush the power of the enemy of God in our lives forever. So then the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 on is kind of the story of how God's going to bring about this wounded healer, the Savior, Jesus. We can also learn that there will will be both tragedy and hope, um, ugliness and beauty. If you follow the Bible through, there's still this goodness of God, this blessing of God, and brokenness of sin. And they exist in a parallel form throughout the Bible and in our lives today. It helps us understand why things are still broken. And then the last thing I think we learn about the big story or our place in the world is this. Although we're not in the Garden of Eden any longer, when you become a follower of Jesus, just as God gave Adam and Eve a commission, they said, Here's what you exist for you exist to take care of this place for me, you exist to enjoy this creation with me, you exist to name the animals, you exist to be my image bearers. Even though that was broken, when Jesus comes to earth, he has final conversations with his followers, his disciples where he gives them a new commission. It's very similar to what we read in Genesis. But Jesus looks at his followers and says, now, I want to tell you what your part is in the big story. And he says phrases like this. Now, I want you to go into all the world and make followers, make disciples of me. In fact, I want you to go in the world, and just as we originally met, to uh, rule and to enhance the earth he says, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to find people who are sick and help them find healing. I want you to find people who are broken or in bondage and help them find freedom. And so now we, we learn that we're still part of a much bigger story. My life is not just about me achieving everything I want to achieve. My life is I still work for God. And Jesus gave his new creation, his followers, a new purpose, a new part in their story. He says, I want you to go and I want you to bring a kingdom, a reality that's very different from the political kingdoms and the economic kingdoms, but it's a kingdom that says, no, there is a God who loves you and there is a way to be forgiven and there is a way to become spiritually alive. And now we get to be on mission with him. That's our part in the story. It's the second chapter to Eden. Is God saying now into this broken world, bring life. I want to end with just a few questions. We weren't able to cover everything. I, like, I literally could teach on this for two months straight. But here's some questions in conclusion. Number one, is my reality shaped by the story God tells about the beginning of the world as we know it? Okay, here's what I'd say. There are a lot of competing stories out there to help us understand the world. You've been exposed to them, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, or if you're considering being a follower of Jesus can you let your reality be shaped by what we just read? Because there are a lot of other things that are shaping us. But if I allow it to be shaped by what God says in these first three chapters, it'll help me understand the world from his viewpoint, okay? Here's the second question. Have I embraced the idea that I am an image bearer of God and that other people are an image bearer of God? it pretty much just changes how I'm going to live my life this week, right? If when I go home, I'm an image bearer to my neighbors and to my family. If when I go to work, I am, I'm designed to be a representative of who God is and what he wants to do in the world by the way I live my life. It, it of course, could put a weight on me that's heavy, but in another sense, it, what a privilege, what, what a responsibility that, I get to reflect, God, I can't make a statue. I can't show my neighbor a statue and like, hey, this is God. But I could live my life in a way that says, I think this is how God feels about you. Um, I can show you. I can show you. Here's my third and final quen- question. Is my sense of purpose shaped by the commission given by my creator? So what am I doing in life? Some of us would say, hey, not much. Some of us would say I'm super busy or I'm, trying to, I'm aiming for this goal. Is my overall purpose in life, am I including this idea that I was made to serve God? That's, that's what I'm here for. I was made to be a part of Jesus' mission. I was made to be a part of God's mission. And the, the goal of my life isn't certain achievements, but it's to hear this one day. A guy would look at me when I breathe my last breath, when I stand in his presence, and he would say this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You lived your life with the right understanding of the story. You lived your life trying to be on mission with me, understanding you were a steward of my world. Will you pray with me? Lord, for any of us who are contemplating and wrestling with uh, the things of the Bible and the claims of Jesus, Lord, would you guide and direct us Lord, we want to be malleable enough. We we don't want to be insecure and hold on to certain things. We we just want to say we're learning to trust you. And and for some of us right now, you're ready to make that commitment to follow Jesus. You're ready to take the, the fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and put it back on the tree and say, I choose dependence on God in relationship rather than autonomy in becoming my own God. And then for all of us, Lord, even in our world, that's so deeply troubled over the last several weeks. Lord, you, you spoke so long ago about the fact that we're all made in your image and we're here for a purpose and that human life is valuable. Lord, would you guide us in that? Would you? We give you permission. We all have our own experiences and our own perspectives, but we want to be shaped by biblical truths that are far grander than anything we've ever been a part of or conceived by ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.